in the Bible's uh, emphasis on the vulnerable, that those who suffer, the disenfranchised, uh, some people refer to the quartet of the vulnerable, the orphan, uh, the widow, the foreigner, the poor. The Bible shines a specific light on them. Why? Because while all people suffer injustice and while all people deserve justice, even those who are well-to-do, it is those, the quartet of the vulnerable, that disproportionately receive the brunt of injustice. And it is that analysis that the Bible provides that um, is meant to invite us to have compassion or empathy and then to lead to appropriate action. Conversations like these are important to me because at heart, I'm a peacemaker. I know there comes a point, as Jesus said, where it's time to bring a sword and not peace. Yet, I want to be optimistic in my outlook of humanity, whether or not that's entirely realistic. My hopes, however, is that through dialogue, through conversations that employ our reason, our empathy, and by God's grace, the Holy Spirit, there might be some who can cross the divide of prejudice, patriarchy, and pride. So, as you're listening to this program, I hope you can find tools that you can use for your next hard conversation. Yes, the ones where you're uncomfortable and you have to break social decorum in order to act within your own personal moral convictions. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are continuing our talk with Dr. Ante Jurancic, Professor of Ethics at Andrews University, on the art of dialogue. Today, we are exploring some of the tools we can use when approaching difficult conversations, as well as the point at which dialogue on an issue of justice is no longer productive or helpful. You can follow Dr. Jurancic on Instagram at jurancic.ante, or you can subscribe to his new YouTube channel, Artis Vivende, by Ante Jurancic. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is Advent Next. Wow, wow. So uh, this is so great. So what are some of the, the, the t- kinds of dialogues that we're having? You just mentioned that, you know, it's even an experience that you can have when you're watching the news or listening to a podcast. Um, so it, it sounds like we're always interacting with some type of uh, a dialogical element, whether it's a person, a text, you mentioned earlier, some art. Are there any other things that we should be considering about how we're interacting with the world and the world is interacting with us. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think perhaps before we answer, before I answer this, if I can just take a kind of a sidestep here and mention um, another reason, another uh, factor, what makes uh, that contributes to the difficulty of dialogue. I think that there are certain uh, cultural realities that we're facing right now, some of which I have mentioned already, that really are undermining the very possibility of a dialogue. The fragmentation that we see on the social media where everyone is belonging to their own tribes and they feel more comfortable there. But I also believe, and this is very interesting, and I I don't know if if you or uh, the listeners will uh, agree with that, 
and uh, just bear with me for a second. Uh, this is kind of an analogical example I want to use. In uh, C.S. Lewis, in The Abolition of Man, he is criticizing specifically relativist ethics. He is criticizing uh, the, uh, any cultural situation in which we cannot agree anymore on certain common norms, on certain universal principles. And here is what he argues. Here's his critique. His critique is when we, if we ever arrive at such a place, when we do not have any more any common frames of reference, how are we, like, who is going to carry the day? Who is going to carry the dialogue? Whose voice is going to be heard? Like, we don't have any rules by which we play commonly agreed rules. We don't have any norms that we share together. So, so whose voice is going to be heard? And basically, he has a very bleak, apocalyptic view of society where those with power, and however we understand power, in terms of being, um, in terms of their reputation or having huge, quote-unquote, megaphones or you know, whatever it is, uh, people who speak the loudest or people who have, they will carry the debate. So he has a very, this kind of dark, dark view. And so we have to ask, like, what is happening in a culture in where people cannot even agree on basic facts? Like, who is going to, how are we going to have a dialogue in a post-truth environment? So this is what really troubles this very notion of dialogue in currently in the situation in which we are. Um, so, so that is perhaps one thing that I wanted to to add kind of as a, a preliminary here. Yeah, no, I love that. And and even maybe even just a preliminary, preliminary, uh, like what are some of those rules of engagement? I mean, because I think you, you said it, you know, we don't have an established sense of how are we going to enter into this dialogue? One thing we talked about before is like, you know, we don't even have a definition of words sometimes when we're talking about a specific issue. You know, I might use this word and mean this, and you might use this word and mean that. So what are some of the, you know, rules of engagement for entering into a productive type of dialogue? Yeah. So this is now very difficult, and it is quite possible that I might frame something or uh, articulate something that might come across the wrong way. I hope that is not going to be the case. But let me like give you like one instance where that is kind of very important in connection to your, to, to your question. And that is the question of intention, right? So I think if we ever come to a place, and I think we have arrived at this place in, in many forms of, of sort of on the, in the blogosphere or the Twitter space or Facebook space, right? Where actually the intention of another person doesn't matter anymore. Now, let me say immediately, I do not believe that intentions, good intentions excuse people. I don't, I don't believe in that, right? Because the fact that you had good intentions doesn't explain much. Because your intentions can be ignorant intentions. You might have, oh, I only meant that. Yes, but if you thought more, read more, listened more, then, well, you would not have had those intentions. So intentions themselves, they cannot give you a 
moral, ethical, free pass necessarily. So I want to put this out immediately because some people are all about intentions, right? Oh, you know, the United States, they had good intentions when they invaded Iraq, you know, because we believe that they had weapons of mass destruction. Yes, but could you have known if you wanted to that there were no weapons of mass destruction? This destruction. Uh, can your ignorance actually be excused? So, uh, which then would invalidate your quote-unquote good intentions. So this is what I wanted to say. I'm absolutely clear, clear on that. At the same time, if in the dialogical space where we find ourselves, let's, the two of us, we now have a conversation, and I frame something. I use an, an expression that might be outdated, or I use some stereotypical language, or I put it in a way that seems to be harsh. And, and if there's never a space, never a time, where you ask me, oh, that really sounded not right, that sounded really offensive, followed with the question, what do you actually mean by that? If, if that space, if that moment completely evaporates, then I think the prospect of dialogue is going to evaporate as well. Then actually our public discourse is only going to be a sort of performative free-for-all. My speaking is only has a performative function where I announce and denounce and never actually take time to really understand where this other person is coming from. So I think that is for me, absolutely cr very critical. Yeah, I, it's funny. Just a funny example. <laughs> I have a, a neighbor. She's like 90 years old. And uh, she was trying to, and I recently got to, to know her. She was trying to ask me, like, you know, what, what's your ethnicity? Like, what's your background or whatever? And she's like, I think they would have called you mulatto, like back when I'm where I'm from. But what do you call yourself now? And I could have easily taken that as an as, as a moment to be like, this lady just called me a mulatto, but <laughs> but I don't think she had any other terminology to grasp it. Like I said, she's ninety, so it it didn't come off as offensive to me because uh, I I was I was understanding you know intention where she was coming from. We have a good relationship. She's not trying to be a certain way. Um, she just you know in in some ways just not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think it's very different. I think that we under also understand. I mean, in this connection, right, that perhaps her language is a reflection of a certain history, right, and implies language that we would perhaps consider, or, or certainly consider, some racist stereotypes. But I think it's very important in our current conversations on race to understand and to realize, and perhaps I, you know, perhaps I have no right to speak about this, but I, I, I would imagine that not all expressions of, of racism rise to the same level, like an intentional expression of uh, denying other people certain rights, denying them certain value, deny, denying them, um, you know, equity and denying them a proper recognition in terms of their worth, in terms of their rights intentional actions, I mean, that that certainly is not on the same level as someone expressing a 
subconscious stereotype by saying, oh, you know, all, let's say, black people, they sing, they, they have a good voice. It's stereotypical. It's bad. It is a reflection of, of, of racist. And, and sometimes such racist statements are part of this um, broader ecology of racist views. But I, I think what my point is, and even if my examples are not good ones, so I, I hope that no one will take me now, just, just jump on these examples. But there needs to be a certain nuance that comes down to this level of intention. Like, what does this person mean? Putting aside these examples that I had, and again, you know, we can leave, we can discuss whether they are right. But the only way in which we can have a fruitful dialogue is to say, well, like, what do you mean? I mean, do you realize, like, in saying that, that you open the door to this? And then when you confront me, me, me being able to say, oh, wow, no, I never, I never thought about that. I thought I was paying a compliment. I thought that this was a given. Oh, I understand. Thanks for letting me know. I will avoid doing so. I mean, does this make sense to you when yeah. I put it that way? Yes. Yeah, no, totally. And I think, you know, I think we're, we're setting up some, some framework for how to have hard conversations. So one of them, you were saying intention, looking at intention. Uh, what are some other kind of things that you would throw in there of saying, like, how do we have rules of engagement and what are some that would also be very helpful um, when, when approaching, you know, controversial or sometimes topics that people don't see eye to eye on? So, so for instance, I think, let me give you an example. And I know, even though I made some comments now on race and racism, you know, I, I, in some ways I'm as an immigrant, uh, I'm both an insider and outsider to the story. I am participating in white privilege, and yet I'm not participating by virtue of being an immigrant and of my accent and had had to experience uh, kind of very uh, sort of unpleasant experiences of being an immigrant in this country in some circumstances. So, but the reason I'm mentioning this is because for me, the way I try to understand what is going on is in terms of my life experience, and I will use that life experience to come back at the question you asked. So uh, the listeners might, might be or might not be aware that in the early 1990s, there was a very bloody, hateful uh, civil war conflict in the former Yugoslavia, in my country, where, where six republics, they you know, fell apart. It was a horrible, horrible situation. A lot of people were killed in all of this. So, so I've been exposed to the evils of nationalism and how nationalism divides people. Nationalism, not simply in terms of civic pride and patriotic sentiments, but actually by demonizing the other and looking down at, at other people who are not part of your, of your tribe. And so the way this is answering your question is the following. Because I experienced being oppressed or being diminished or being laughed at by members of other ethnic communities. I'm, I'm very sensitive to that. And, I, and so what other people would never see as any problem, you know, I am like hyper perhaps allergic to things because I went through that. And so I would say that my experience of whatever it was subjugation, which cannot be compared at all 
to the history of of the original sin of this country, right? Slavery and the consequence of that. I, I can understand the prejudice, the put down, the implicit bias that is there. And I believe that my experience gives me certain special antennas, gives me certain special insight that people who have not gone through this would never, oh, there's no problem, everything's, no, 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 no. You see this, this was, it gives me insight. At the same time, at the same time, I, in certain circumstances, have read into certain statements or read into certain situations what simply wasn't there. So my hypersensitivity in certain circumstances actually led me to overinterpret, to overanalyze, to impute motives and intent that simply wasn't there. So this is the lesson that I have, that my life experience, my situatedness, whatever it is, gender, uh, race, religion, economic impact, social, social status, and all of this, on the one hand, will make me more sensitive, but the, the very same thing can lead me to a blind to, to blindness or to over-interpretation or over-imputation. And to coming with, and this is comes back to my initial comments about the importance of humility. The sense that even I, who has a story that needs to be shared, who has a story that gives me right to speak, that even I as such, precisely because of that story, might be in the wrong, either in terms of interpreting situations or proposing remedies or, or actions, that humility, I think, needs to be there in any kind of dialogue to, to really to take place. Mm. I really love that too. You know, you said you had a story that needs to be shared. And I think that sometimes we don't, we don't always see ourselves as, as, as constituting a, a story that needs to be shared. But I, I think, you know, as you're talking about how our experiences with other people, with community, with art, uh, it really does help us to get outside of ourselves, but also to understand ourselves as human beings. And so the necessity of, of, people telling stories and also the necessity of making space for those stories to be told. Um, one thing you talked about in your class, and maybe we could touch a little bit about, about this, is empathy, right? Which is like one of those qualities that are needed uh, for listening. And so if you could touch on that just a little bit. Yeah, empathy is certainly when we talk about ethics, uh, is a central moral emotion, right? When we talk about moral psychology, when we talk about central moral emotions, empathy is one of them. And we recognize this. Uh, President Obama used to talk a lot about this. There are many. Jamal Zaki recently wrote a book on empathy. And, and, and many other authors, we, we don't need to go now through these titles, are reminding us just how central empathy is. And the good thing about empathy and I think that is very important to stress, is that empathy is something that can be learned. Now, I have to step back just for a second and say, you know, people understand empathy in, in different ways. Some, some people understand it in a minimalist sense. Others understand it more in a maximalist sense. In a minimalist sense, they 
focus on the etymological meaning of empathy, simply this notion of feeling with, feeling with someone, and then they separate it kind of with compassion, which is either also a rational understanding and then actually concrete action. Some of the people have a more maximalist understanding of empathy, where in their definition, compassion then is one of these aspects. Right, so so this is this is depends how you define it, and I don't want to now take side on any of these definitions. It's really just pick one definition and then run with it. But empathy is is so deeply, deeply important, and it, and there's several several uh, several aspects to this. One aspect is when we think about the Bible and the Bible's uh, emphasis on the vulnerable, that those who suffer, the disenfranchised. Some people refer to the quartet of the vulnerable, you know, the orphan, uh, the widow, the foreigner, the poor. It is those that they, they have, the Bible shines a specific light on them. Why? Because while all people suffer injustice and while all people deserve justice, even those who are well-to-do, it is those, the quartet of the vulnerable, that disproportionately, receive the brunt of injustice. And it is that analysis that the Bible provides that um, is meant to invite us to have compassion or empathy and then to lead to appropriate action. So empathy and slash compassion, however you define these terms, is precisely that emotion that that moves us out of a perhaps cold, calculated moral judgment to a deep connection with the pain of humanity in order to act. And I do believe in the context, if I read my scriptures rightly, in the sense of the shining the light on the vulnerable and the quartet of the, of the vulnerable, that they deserve to have a special voice, that their stories should have a special location. That leads me to say, wait a minute. People who, who have been um, denied rights, whose stories is a story of oppression, of victims of bias, victims of institutionalized injustice, those are the voices that have to speak, right? That is why these lives matter more than others. And do, and, and in the sense of, not that other lives don't matter as well, but these lives matter. So black lives matter, right, in our context here, precisely because the time is finally to shut up and to listen to the stories of injustice and pain and hurt accumulated over centuries in order to understand and to have proper compassion and empathy. Hmm. Wow. What are some of the, so I, I love this. And you said something about we're in like a post-truth era. And so having kind of a, a proper dialogue in that atmosphere is very difficult. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Like, what did you mean by the post-truth era? And how can we, what are, what are ways that we can begin to frame a framework so that we can um, talk yeah. So, I mean, the post-truth era is, is a phenomenon that really 
really, I mean, it has been around for a while. People have critiqued the notion of truth for a long time. We have in Friedrich Nietzsche in the 19th century, some postmodern philosophers for sure, in the 70s, excuse me, in the 80s have, have you know, written quite about this, have problematized the notion of truth. But I would say that the, the, this uh, post-truth, the word post-truth, really went into a kind of a common, became a common, common coinage, sorry, a common coinage. Um, you know, in 2016, it became an Oxford, I believe, Oxford Dictionary uh, word of the year. And so it seems to me that, that certain, certain kind of uh, populist forces, uh, uh, sort of disenchantment with the liberal order, combined with the rise of social media and the way we communicate and the way these kind of algorithms lead us ever deeper into more radicalized sort of, as I said before, echo chambers or sort of walled-in uh, enclaves, that these kind of realities, both kind of, kind of disenchantment with the political order and the way we communicate that the confluence of that has really led to a situation in which people have become impervious to, um, to other information. And many people have written about this, people like Jonathan Hyde and others who have, who have done many studies on these issues. And they have, and we now understand, you know, the confirmation bias, all these different cognitive biases that we have, where people actually when they hear opposing facts or imposing information, they actually, rather than being challenged, rather than stopping and saying, oh, wow, let me think about this, they actually become more entrenched in what they believe. I mean, isn't this kind of just amazing, right? That, that rather than opposing facts leading you to re-examine what you believe, they actually lead you to become more established into your ideological framework that you inhabit. And that is incredibly scary, how difficult it is to change. How difficult, forget about changing, how difficult it is even to listen to, to other voices. We don't have any common news that we listen to. We have, there are no spaces, there's no realm of facts that all of us are being exposed to uh, to, a, to the same degree that, that which we then can debate and dialogue. And that kind of situation where we have a breakdown of really some common language, common framework, common worldview, common narratives, common stories, where symbols such as minor acts, such as wearing a mask, can be politicized and taken as a symbol to belong either to one America or to the other America. I mean, what, what happens to the very idea of dialogue, which is predicated on openness and humility and listening in a context such as this? So this was my idea. This was the kind of thing that I wanted yeah. to emphasize. And, and I guess, and I don't know, maybe there's some things to, to bring out around this, because you're saying even how just a simple mass can be politicized as a form of speech, right? So what are all the ways that we are dialoguing in this world? Um, that it, sometimes it's not just speech. It can be uh, different types of things. So what are some, yeah, again, uh, what are some other forms of human speech that we might be 
yeah. dialoguing with. Not all, not all type of dialogue is a dialogue of equals. I would imagine the relationship of a master and a student, like a Socrates and his interlocutors, uh, Socrates, this you know, Socratic dialogue where the philosopher you know, is going around and asking questions and probing questions and all of that. You know, there's certain asymmetrical relationship and that, that is okay. You know, sometimes you are in a position where you dialogue because you want to learn and the other person knows more. Uh, so that's, that's, that's quite there, right? It's, 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 it's present. Sometimes very different is a dialogue of equals where we have, let's say, uh, you know, we, we uh, come with the assumption that we have uh, not a master-slave relationship or a student-master relationship, but we are, we are two human beings who try to understand each other. So that dialogue will be of a, of a different, uh, of a different uh, nature. Um, so, so I think these are different types uh, of dialogues that we, that, we, that, that we can have. We also dialogue, I mean, this wouldn't be really dialogue, right? But we also dialogue or, or at least promote our opinions through, through certain symbols. Uh, uh, we have now uh, you know, a profound clash in, the, in this society, you know, whether certain symbols should be removed, um, should be taken down. But whether we can refer to this to dialogue, uh, I can hardly, hardly uh, imagine, imagine that. So, so there's this thing. Let me just add one more thing. That like any good concept, any, any good idea has its shadow side. Right? Love can be actually a type of manipulation. Uh, the language of truth can actually be a euphemism for propaganda and for some alternative reality and for some whitewashing, right? And all of that. So the same is uh, with, with dialogue. A dialogue is not an pristine, unequivocally good concept because if dialogue is being used in a condition in which it is being, we are appealing to dialogue, but in a way which is actually simply a means of imposing, or a means of stifling, or a means of excluding other voices. So using the word dialogue to promote non-dialogue, where dialogue then becomes, the language of dialogue becomes a language of ideology, the same way the language of free speech actually is a good thing, but can be also used to promote um, intolerance and violence, right? So, so not all dialogue is necessarily good. So, so I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I do believe that the different types of dialogues, different types of relationship in which we stand to, and also this idea that, that sometimes dialogue is a euphemism for something that is not altogether benevolent and good. I, I like that. And maybe you can expand on that because even when it comes to specifically looking at, you know, domestic violence victims, you know, one thing they try and train pastors not to do is to sit them down in a room and say, well, let's dialogue about what happened in this situation, right? Uh, because that, that there's no dialogue to be had. There is one person is in the wrong and it doesn't matter what the rationale is. So are there conversations in which there should be no dialogue where it's like, there, you know, there's a right and there is a wrong, and the wrong doesn't have a side to speak. Yeah, this is this is a this is, thank you for asking this. This is such a 
uh, important uh, question. I remember a couple of years ago, and you might remember this, when the move Z uh, Zero Dark, um, Dark Thirty came out about you know the hunt for um, uh, Bin Laden and all of that. And that book had, not the book, sorry, the, the movie had some uh, falsely, and some people have argued this was not correct how it actually happened. But basically, the way the movie was structured was that uh, the, the capture, or the, 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 the kill, not capture, the, the killing of, of Bin Laden, the first step towards that was actually begins with the torture scene. And so some people have then uh, reflected on the movie and the role of enhanced interrogations and torture and have stated, you know, that that, that movie kind of invites us uh, to have a dialogue in our society about, about torture. And um, Slavoj Žižek, who is a you know, philosopher, culture critic, mm, and public intellectual, said something, well, you know, we cannot always use the word dialogue in such a neutral sense, right? Let's say if we were in a culture in which someone said, okay, well, well let's have a dialogue about situations in which rape might be justified. The language of dialogue would simply be a language of, of something that is morally obscene. Like nothing would show the decadence of a culture or the decadence of a situation, of a conversation, where someone would say, oh, let's have a dialogue about, about rape, right? So sometimes what the argument then is that, uh, that and, and Zizek, Zizek's argument was the following, that precisely this idea that we need to have a dialogue over the justified use of torture, that very language shows how our culture has been morally malformed. So, obviously, that speaks to your question how in certain types of violence, you know, uh, the, the, the very invocation of dialogue is, is problematic. But I would also say what, what happened during the civil rights movement, right, when, when white leaders and politicians were uh, counseling uh, Dr. King to wait, right, to Let's let's solve dialogue. Let's let's not be so. Let's not rush with these marches and protests and all of that. And we know that uh, in his letter from the Birmingham jail, right, he basically rejects dialogue. Right, dialogue is becomes an ideology of postponement. Postponement. A, a dialogue. The language of dialogue becomes an ideology of status quo. And he absolutely, absolutely rejects it. And, and that time is over. Change has to happen now, right? So, so th these are some of the difficult issues when it comes to discussing, you know, the, the function and the role of dialogue. And I guess, and I mean, you may not have the answer to this, but like, so when is that time? You know, like, when is it there the time for dialogue? And when is it the time for action and saying, okay, no more talk. This is... The, the, there, there are no more words that are welcome in this situation because it's going to, uh, you know, take away the dignity of, of the people involved, etc. Like, can, how do we measure when it's the right time to talk and when it's the right time to just wrap it up? Yeah, you know, I think uh, this is a very difficult question. Like with many ethical questions, uh, I am I am a person who believes a lot of these answers cannot be answered apart from context. 
in part from the deep struggle of to arrive at moral judgments about a particular situation. Uh, so it's hard for me to answer this. It is hard to answer as a matter of principle. It is hard to answer. But I would say, you know, that you can think about this at least in two different ways. Uh, look at our situation. In some ways that we're facing right now in this country after all of these uh, acts of police brutality and, and all of that, that I would say that this unique cultural situation is, is one that says enough of just talking about it, en enough of just dialoguing about it. Something has to change. So it seems to be that the confluence like, why these things happen at this particular moment, or at, at a particular moment? Like, why, why, why George Floyd? Why did the, why, why was that a catalyst, and not some of the other uh, 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 killings that happened before? Right? Why, why now and not before? Some things have come together. Things have built up. A, a collective anger, a collective sen sense of disgust has just just come to the surface and people have said it's enough is enough but to be honest it has been enough for a long time and not just two or three years ago but for decades it has already been enough when it comes to a lot of these structural injustices so so it all depends how you how you define this yet at the same time at the same time even in in moments where you have enough is enough uh, kind of sensibilities, even such moments are not the end of dialogue. Because even in such moments, we still have to decide well, how specifically to act, like what specifically to do. We have to take into account certain prudential considerations, timing, methods, manner, uh, defunding the police. Okay, but what does that exactly mean? Is this meant to be the same for all communities everywhere? Uh, is this about reform? What kind of reforms? Um, on, on how quickly are we to do them? Uh, so see, because, because life is complex, life is never free of constant assessment of situation, constant evaluation of what needs to be done. And that is why, in some way, the type for dialogue and type for reflection and type for judgment is never behind us. Mm, that's so great. I appreciate the thoughts that you kind of brought together on these topics. Is there any last word that you'd want to leave our audience when we're considering about entering into the space of tough questions? Maybe one thing too is, um, and I think we talked about this uh, previously, but like that there has to be kind of a, a moral framework or a moral fabric within the person to be able to ethically uh, enter into that space of dialogue uh, and to do it well. But anyway, what, what are your thoughts that you want to leave uh, with our audience today? Yeah, I think it's what, what is really for me quite significant is when I, when I think about beat dialogue or empathic action or um, advocacy of any kind, it brings me back to this something I mentioned, uh, I think, at the beginning of our conversation. And that is, like, what kind of specific practices are involved with that? 
like the importance I mentioned, the importance of listening and, and learning. And, you know, if, if you don't know, if you don't understand the issue of, of race, if all of that is, you know, over your head and you think it's, a, well, go, go and talk to people. Like, read books, find out about history, uh, listen to a podcast such as the 1619 podcast that it was brought out by the New York Times, a fabulous podcast on the history of slavery, and it's find out about it, right? So there are many things that we can do. Do not plead. Uh, you, your ignorance uh, can become easily a culpable ignorance if you don't know, but you could have known better and with knowing better be a better participant in any sort of dialogical setting but also in addition to what i can do and for me this is this is always important it brings me back to the kind of human being i need to be in order to be to enter into into a situation of of dialogue right i need to be I mentioned humility, right? Um, humility that that I might be wrong, even if I have my story gives me the right to have a higher moral standing. Even if I, you know, click all the check marks, sort of of intersectionality, where you know all these things seemingly give me a higher moral standing than someone else who hasn't gone through these things. Even I never inhibit a pristine epistemological, a pristine realm of truthfulness. I always can be mistaken. So humility and, and openness to learn uh, from others. Also, uh, a sense of being able to extend forgiveness and, and to have compassion. And, and as a Christian, uh, however you are truthful, however you are right, um, it doesn't give you, no pun intended, it doesn't give you the right to leave behind central Christian virtues such as uh, goodness and kindness and gentleness and brotherly love, right? So, so dialogue and justice and the pursuit of, of truth, that for a Christian can never be disassociated from the call to be a disciple of Jesus in the totality of what that all means in imitating Christ in terms of who he was and the kind of character he had. That, I believe, is absolutely important to keep in mind. I'm walking away from this conversation with the sense that dialogue really depends on the character of the two participants. Finding common ground between views that seem mutually exclusive can only be done when the moral fabric of each person is made up of a humility that is willing to learn. Empathy of one who is willing to suffer with. A humanity that cares for the vulnerable and poor. A listening spirit that is willing to be quiet. And a fear of God who is the final judge of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Without these key elements that exist within a person's journey of moral development, a productive conversation with someone holding a contrary perspective is nearly impossible. Good conversations begin with ourselves. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope this conversation provided you tools for productive conversations in the future. 
Be sure to tune in next week where we talk with Dr. Heather Thompson Day on her upcoming book, It's Not Your Turn. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible, as well as our guest, Dr. Ante Jaranchik. You can follow him on his YouTube channel, Artis Vivende by Ante Jaranchik. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle at AdventNext. As always, I appreciate your feedback as well as your suggestions for future episodes. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in and see you next week.